Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the, ded the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all of the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all of the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you and we ask, Father, that you'd be pleased to bless us with uh, understanding and insight uh, into uh, these passages, Father. And as we look elsewhere in your word this morning, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would meet us in this place. You would teach us and not just simply give us more information to store somewhere in our minds, but, oh, Father, you would move our hearts as we learn this, Father, that you would open up our eyes and ears to what you're doing and to uh, the realm that's beyond the physical, Father. We ask, Lord, that you would continually give us greater insight into the spiritual realm, which, uh, which really is so very active, oh, Father, but yet so invisible to us in so many ways. So, Father, we ask and we pray and we thank you that you have given us your word. Otherwise, Father, these things would be complete mysteries to us. We could know nothing about them. So, Father, we pray that you would move us this morning, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but, Father, you would be pleased to transform us and change us by your word this morning. In Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. This morning, I'm going to venture into some territory that may be very new to uh, many of you. And as I was thinking about this, I was pondering uh, this direction all week. I was really at a kind of a crux. I didn't know whether we ought to go into chapter 4 or we ought to just go into this or not. And I was going back and forth. And as I was doing that, I was saying to myself, you know, I really don't recall hearing a sermon on any of this stuff um, nor did uh, we really study it much in seminary or Bible study, but um, our passage this morning, um, it's, it, what it's presenting to us is far more than just simply an egomaniac king who is setting up this image and asking people to worship. Uh, what's going on here is nothing less than 
the operation of what, for the sake of this message and the sake of this morning, I will call the idolatrous state. The idol, think the word idol, the idolatrous state or the idolatrous government, if you will. Uh, this is a, uh, a really important uh, message that I think as we begin to see, we see this through the fabric of the whole scriptures. And in fact, the title this morning is How to Stand and Minister Amidst the Idolatrous State. Now, before I even get into this, let me qualify that title because I don't want to be misunderstood this morning as throwing rocks at the government. I don't want to be understood this morning as demonizing government. God has ordained government. We think of uh, the Apostle Paul and his words in Romans 13. He writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And you hear me allude to uh, this verse in, in my pastoral prayer each Lord's Day. We pray for our government. How often have you heard me pray for those who are put in positions by God, those positions of leadership, whether they be at the local level, they be at the state level, they be at the federal level. We recognize from God's Word that it's no accident that these men and women are in and occupying these places. God has set them up. In fact, we can recall from our study in Daniel back in chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 when Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem and he comes in with his military campaign. He lays siege to the city of God and he takes it. We learn that he takes it because God has handed it over to him. So Nebuchadnezzar is certainly no exception to this rule. Nebuchadnezzar is reigning because God has placed him there. In fact, Daniel says in his prayer in chapter 2, he says that it is the Lord who sets up kings and it's the Lord who removes kings. And furthermore, something that's very important for us to always keep in mind, I have to remind myself of this a lot, it is the Lord who changes times and seasons. These are changing times. We think of the old Bob Dylan song. Some of us may remember, you know, the times are changing. The times are changing. That's my Bob Dylan version, you know. They are changing, aren't they? They really are changing. So the title, with the title Idolatry State, I don't want to be understood as demonizing the, the government. I don't want to set up this kind of us-them mentality. I don't want to do anything of the kind. Um, what I want to do this morning is I want to develop the pictures that God gives us in His Word so that we can see beyond as to what's happening here. And uh, the first picture that we have really is in uh, Daniel chapter 3 here. It's a picture of an idolatrous state, if you will. It's a picture of an idolatrous government. But I don't want to just simply develop those pictures. I want to go a little further than that. You know, a lot of times whenever we think of Daniel, uh, we think of, okay, Daniel is showing us how to stand amidst the fiery trials. You know, how do we face these fiery trials and how do we stand through these fiery trials? But Daniel goes further than that. The book of Daniel doesn't simply show us how we can stand amidst the fiery trials. It shows us how we can actively minister in the midst of the fiery trials. As we look at Daniel and as we continue to study Daniel, the, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're doing far more than simply standing faithfully for God. 
They're actively ministering to the people of Babylon. And we're going to see this, when we, especially as we continue on here. There's quite a ministry taking place there. So hence my title. How do we stand and minister in the midst of these changing times, in the midst of this idolatrous state? So here, let's, let's first develop what I mean by this idolatrous state. If you look in Daniel chapter 3 with me to the first seven verses, it's familiar to us. We've been looking at it. In verse 1, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. He set that image up on the plain of Dura. Uh, plain being a, a large, flat piece of ground, if you will. Um, interestingly enough, this flat piece of ground is a, at around sea level. That'll become important. It'll, well, that'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting thing later on here. Um, but the word set up are really important. As we've read through this uh, a couple times, last week we read through it this morning, you notice how many times set up comes up in verses 1 through 7? It comes up so much that if we were to take Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 to our old English teacher, uh, she would have some red ink uh, on our paper. And she would say that this is redundant. We don't need to use the word set up so many times. Uh, she would be marking our papers and asking us to, uh, uh, to condense this. Well, the Holy Spirit does not need an English teacher. Uh, the Holy Spirit is doing this for a reason. He wants us to see through the repetition, He wants us to see that it is Nebuchadnezzar who has set up this image. Why do we need to see that? Because ultimately it is Nebuchadnezzar who is behind the image. We don't know exactly what the image looked like. Perhaps it was a replica of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. But we really don't know what that looked like. We can envision it's, it looked like a human being. It had a head, arms, and it's a statue of a man, but we don't know exactly what it looked like. But it could have been, uh, it could have been an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. We don't know. But what we do know is behind that image is old Nebuchadnezzar. There's no mistake about that. So Nebuchadnezzar sets up the image. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar has called all of the nations together to assemble before this image. He's doing it representatively. He's calling all of the leaders of all of the conquered nations in the kingdom of Babylon to come together before the image. So he's doing it representatively. He's bringing all of the who's who of all these various nations, and he's got them all gathered on the plain before this 90-foot structure that's made of gold. Undoubtedly very beautiful. It's a very beautiful, massive, and probably breathtaking structure. And thirdly, Nebuchadnezzar is requiring that all worship the image. The command is this. When the music plays, you bow down or you get burnt. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the spiel. Uh, no flexibility in that. Uh, when you, the music plays, you bow down or you get burnt. And last week, we, uh, last week we saw that this really is in blatant defiance to what God has revealed. You know, if I might just review a couple things that we looked at la last week. We did it kind of quickly. But I asked sarcastically, where do you suppose Nebuchadnezzar got the idea for this big 90-foot structure? Of course, uh, he's got it from his dream. And as we think about the dream, the 90-foot or the, the massive structure that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream had a head of gold, right? 
arms and chest of silver, uh, belly and uh, thighs of bronze, and legs and feet of iron. There's four different types of metals here. And Daniel gives the word of the Lord to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, listen to Nebuchadnezzar, king, you, you are the head of gold. You're the head of gold. But after you, which would have been a daring thing for Daniel to say to him, he's a very powerful and capricious figure. I mean, we're already seeing from him. He's an unstable guy. You don't know what he's going to do. What's he going to do next? He could go off with your head at any minute, couldn't he? It would be rough working for this guy, you know, but tomorrow morning when we're frustrated at work, let's just be thankful we don't work for Nebuchadnezzar. It'd be frustrating, but Daniel says, listen, after you, after you comes this, this other kingdom. That was a brave thing to say to him. And of course, after, after that kingdom's going to come another kingdom, and after that kingdom's going to come another kingdom. And they're all represented by the different alloys of, of materials, the different alloys of metals. Well, then what's Nebuchadnezzar do after he gets this? He says, no. There's not going to be no silver. There's not going to be no bronze. There's not going to be no, no iron. You can almost see him on a stump saying this stuff, you know, with everybody ground, gathered around him at a town hall meeting, you know. There isn't going to be no silver. There isn't going to be no bronze. There isn't going to be no, uh, uh, there isn't going to be no iron. It's going to be all gold. What's the significance of that? Nebuchadnezzar is defying the word of the Lord. All gold. Babylon is going to endure forever. That's the statement that's being made, correct? Babylon is going to endure forever. And uh, uh, to unify his kingdom, in order to unify his kingdom, he sets up this image of gold. He gathers everyone around and he says, listen, Whenever you hear the music play, you bow down and you worship this image. And that'll keep you from thinking about starting another kingdom. This is the unifying principle here. And what do we have here? Uh, well, people are free to believe whatever they want just so when the music plays, they bow down to the image. That's the idolatrous state. That's the first picture I want to develop this morning of the idolatrous state. It's more than an egomaniac here on the loose. There's much more going on than that. Now, for the next picture, we need to turn in our Bibles to Genesis 11. Uh, if you'll turn to page, if you're using the church's Bible, page 8 to Genesis 11. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. Some of you are familiar with Genesis might already be making the connection. Genesis 11 verses 1 through 9. This will be our second, our second portrait of this. And actually in terms of the Bible, it's really the first portrait of this. Uh, but in terms, for the sake of our message this morning, it's our second picture. In Genesis 11 verses 1 through 9, we read these words. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. You want to take a guess of where the plain and the land of Shinar is? It's in Babylon. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we dis be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, 
and they have one, they all, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and therefore confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now here is another picture of the idolatrous state. First of all, where are they? I've already spoken to that. They're on a plain, uh, a, log, a, a, a flat level uh, piece of ground, which interestingly enough is at sea level. And um, uh, they're, they're building this city in the precincts of, or in the region of Babylon. Well, what are they doing? Verse 4 tells us that they have four goals. First, they're going to build a great city. They're going to build a tower whose top is in the heavens. They're going to make a name for themselves. And they're going to keep from being dispersed over the face of the earth. Now, what is so bad about all this? Is, is, this, is this bad? Is this good? What, what is wrong with this? Well, let's start with the last goal and work our way to the first. If we look at these goals here very closely, one of their central goals is to keep from being dispersed over the face of the earth. They want to stay together in this area. Well, what could be wrong with that? What's wrong with that is the Lord has called humanity to be fruitful and to multiply and what? Fill the earth. God has commanded humanity to be dispersed over the entire earth. They're saying no. No. It's not what we're going to do. This looks like a good place to build a great city. This is what we're going to do. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with building a great city? God was building a city. God built a city of Jerusalem. Of course, he's building a celestial city. You might use John Bunyan's old terminology, the new Jerusalem. God's in the business of building a city. What's wrong with building a city? Well, they're building a city without God. A city that doesn't have God is what they're doing. And they're trying to make a name for themselves. What's wrong with that? Well, they're trying to make a name for themselves apart from God. They're laboring for their glory, not for God's glory. And what about this tower? You know, when I was... <laughs> When I was a child, I remember reading this. See, Mom and Dad bought me this uh, little, one of those children's Bibles, and incidentally, I still have it. It's in my library. And I remember reading in Genesis 11, I remember reading about this, and I remember thinking, how did these folks ever think they were going to build a tower that's so tall that it would get into the heavens? Has anybody ever struggled with that? How, how, I mean, and first of all, they're building at sea level. I mean, if I wanted to build a tower that was going to reach all the way to the heavens, at least I would find some big hill to start on, at least get a, a few hundred feet or a couple thousand feet head start here. Uh, why do it in a valley that's basically at sea level? Well, now I know a little better. They weren't trying to build a tower that literally went to the heavens. What are they doing? They're assembling a place of worship is what they're doing. They're putting together a place of worship. It, Dr. James Boyce has some interesting comments on this. He takes this view just a little bit further. 
And uh, I'm going to share a little bit of this because I think it's fascinating. He suggests that the top of this tower had a representation of the heavens in it. And what he is suggesting is that it had a zodiac. You know what a zodiac is? It's, uh, you know, that little circle that you see, you know, and it's got the, the it, it traces the, uh, the movements and the belts of the planets, and it has all the planets uh, kind of uh, 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 segued off into sections. There's 12 different sections, and, and then each, uh, uh, each section has its own sign, uh, Leo, Virgo, Aries, uh, Cancer, if you will, and that's where you get the horoscope and you get astrology and you get all of that stuff. Well, guess where, I mean, any book on astrology uh, will, will show you, where does astrology originate from? Babylon. In fact, Dr. Boyce, he writes, quote, Astrology, which focuses on a study of the zodiac, originated in Babylon. Turn to any book on astrology and you'll find that it was the Chaldeans, another name for the inhabitants of Babylon, who first developed the zodiac. By dividing the sky into sections and giving meanings to each on the basis of the stars that are found there. A person's destiny is said to be determined by whatever section or sign he is born under. Okay, we've heard those kinds of things. From Babylon, astrology passed to the empire of ancient Egypt, where it mingled with the native animism and polytheism of the Nile. This is really interesting. The pyramids were constructed with certain mathematical relationships to the stars. The Sphinx has astrological significance. It has a head of a woman symbolizing Virgo, the virgin, and the body of a lion symbolizing Leo. Virgo is the first sign of the zodiac, Leo the last. So the Sphinx, which incidentally means joining in Greek, is the meeting point of the zodiac, indicating that the Egyptian priests believed the starting point of the earth in relation to the zodiac lay in Egypt on the banks of the Nile. By the time the Jews left Egypt for Canaan, astrology had infected the population there. Hence, some of the strictest warnings in the Bible against astrology date from this period. And if you look in your Old Testament, the Leviticus, and you look uh, Leviticus 19.31 or Deuteronomy 18, you'll find very sharp rebukes and prohibitions against this kind of thing. Um, still later, uh, Boyce continues, astrology entered the religious life of Rome. Uh, the interesting thing about these biblical denunciations of astrology is that astrology is identified with demonism and Satanism in the sense that Satan and his hosts were actually being worshipped in the guise of the signs or planets. This is the reason for the Bible's stern denunciation of these practices and of quote. Now, whether Boyce is correct or not, one thing is certainly for sure. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, they're setting up a place for false worship. What do we have going on in Nebuchadnezzar's city of Babylon? We have false worship taking place down to this, at, at, this, at this monument that he has set up, that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. We have false worship taking place. What do we have going on at the Tower of Babel? False worship, endeavoring to be self-sufficient from God, endeavoring to push God out of our lives and to, uh, to do this without God. We're going to build this great city and we're, we're going to do all of these things uh, without God. Um, so now we have our two, our two pictures so far of, uh, of the idolatrous state, if you will. Uh, let's look at a third. 
to the book of Revelation, to Revelation 17, which we read earlier in our service. Revelation 17. There's a lot of cryptic imagery in the book of Revelation that makes it somewhat difficult to understand. Revelation 17. If you're making use of the Bible that's on your seats, page 1037. And this picture is not only our third picture, but this picture begins to sum it all together for us. Revelation 17. I'll pause for a moment because I want you to see this for yourself. Revelation 17. If you look with me to verses 1 and 2. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. John continues in verse 3. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adored with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Okay, what is that all about? What is that all about? Well, passage concerns judgment, doesn't it? Judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Who is the great prostitute? Look with me to verse 5. The great prostitute is Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. We're back to Babylon again, aren't we? And notice that she's riding on a beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. What's the scoop with the beast? If, you've, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you'll be familiar with the beast of Revelation 13. This is the same beast, if you will. Uh, and this beast represents demonized state persecuting power. Persecuting power. And the woman, notice that she's arrayed in purple and scarlet, She's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, and she's holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. Uh, clearly, the woman is, is, is being portrayed here as an adulteress, correct? And she's seducing her victims with luxury and pleasure and all of these sensual delights, if you will. Now, here's the good life. You know, look at this. She's seducing her, her victims, if you will, uh, seducing them. So we see that the, the language of sexual immorality here is actually pointing to false religion. It's not that actual physical sexual morality is excluded. It's not, uh, because sexual immorality often goes hand in hand with false religion. But if you read through the prophets and you read through the Bible, you'll see that oftentimes apostasy and false religion are put into adulterous terminology. So it's false worship is what she's holding in her cup. And what she's promising is this good life, this luxury, this sensual pleasure. 
and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, notice that she is riding on this beast. And what is the significance of that? Well, the beast is, is, is this demonizing state power. And like, let's think about some of the pictures we've looked at. Let's go back to old Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sure that when you were in the presence of that man, it probably put a sense of awe into you. He was the most powerful man on the planet at that time. And he set up this image of gold, 90 feet tall. It would have been very difficult to have looked at that and not had this sense of seduction. That's the seduction part of it all. Look at Nebuchadnezzar. He's a, he's a successful man. He's a powerful man. And uh, you can enjoy in this success, and you can enjoy in this power, and you can have all of these things too. When you hear the music, fall to the floor. That's the seduction part. What about the beastly part? Well, if you don't fall to the floor, you're going to the furnace. That's that state demonized power. And here we see the prostitute riding on the beast. We see how this thing works, don't we? All oh, the seduction. Things are going to go well for you if you just, just fall to the floor. You know? We can share in the good life here. Just fall to the floor. You better fall to the floor. You don't fall to the floor, you're going to the furnace. See how that works? See the imagery there? It's actually, it's actually quite clear. But what ends up happening to the prostitute? Look down to verses 15 and 16. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw were the where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. She's going to get destroyed. Now, what is this ultimately about? Well, it's about idolatry. The prostitute is about false religion. She's a false church. And she's promising all of these goods. And when she can't deliver on all these goods, guess what? The people who are idolizing her, the people who are holding her up, are going to eventually turn on her and they're going to kill her. They're going to do away with her. And the spiritual principle that we need to come out of this with is that evil self-destructs. It simply self-destructs. And stepping back from that principle, we need to have in mind another principle. The idolatrous state of which all of this is symbolizing is a self-destructing entity. It self-destructs. It very clearly self-destructs. Now, let's make some application of this. What has all this got to do with us in 21st century America? I mean, we're not being thrown, we're not being threatened to be thrown into a fiery furnace, are we? Not to my knowledge. Doesn't sound like that would be very nice. But are we free from all of the facets of the idolatrous state? No way. No way. 
No way. No way. Let me give you some examples. Our government doesn't care what you believe as long as you keep it out of the public eye. Is that not like one of the unifying principles of our existence? Don't you ever like feel the resistance of that whenever an opportunity opens and you kind of feel like you're doing something you shouldn't be doing by telling somebody about Jesus? And to the measure you feel that resistance, what are you feeling? You're feeling, you're feeling the adulterous state, the power of the adulterous state. But you're also feeling the seduction of it, too. You're feeling the seduction of it, too, whenever you think, man, man maybe I better not do this. Things are going to go better for me if I don't do this. But it's defiant. Christ has commanded his church to do what? What was the last thing we studied in our study of Matthew? He, gave, he commissions his church to do what? Are, are we doing something wrong when we tell somebody about Jesus? We're engaged in the same business as the Holy Spirit when we tell somebody about Jesus, but yet how often have you felt like you're doing something wrong when you do it? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt a resistance? What's up with that? How could we feel like we're doing something wrong or we're doing something we shouldn't be doing when we're engaged in the exact same work as the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is in concert with the entire Godhead? How could we possibly be doing something wrong and telling somebody about Jesus Christ? The idolatrous state, that phenomenon of the idolatrous state is behind all of this. Listen, you can believe whatever you want you just keep it in the closet. You know, I, I used to get invited to all of these, what I call, I tell Tammy, I call the God and Country events. I, I don't really like the God and Country events, and the God and Country events are all dying around here. I think they're dying, and I think they should be put to death, because I think they're a waste of time. But I used to get invited to speak at those things, and I used to think, this is a great opportunity to share the gospel, and that's what I went and did. And you know, I've never been invited. In fact, I asked Tammy yesterday, I said, I said, I said, sweetie, have I ever been re-invited to one of those things? I used to get invited to those, but I, I've been around a few of them, but I don't think I've ever been re-invited to any of them. And she goes, oh, I don't think. Uh, and I, I can recall, I got one in my, I don't forget a lot of them, you know, some of them were the September 11th things and some, you know, the, some of the other things, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Anderson, we'd like you to come and speak. And if uh, you could think like, thank God and country. You know how many times I've heard it? Thank God and country. Here's what that means. Say something that won't offend nobody that sounds kind of religious. That is a waste of time. And that's not my calling. And I refuse to do it. I refuse to do it. So I don't get invited back, and that's fine. Because I'm a busy guy, and I don't have time for that stuff anyway. But you know something? It's dying. It has to die. It's a bunch of nonsense. It has to die. It has to die. We could, we could come up with more, more, many, many, many more examples. You know, in the public education arena, you can teach about any scientific theory you want as long as you leave intelligent design out of it. Teach about anything you want. Bring in intelligent design and what happens? You'll feel the threat, the power of the adulterous state. That's what will happen. You know, if we heed all of this, when the music plays, 
if we're heeding all this, well, then we bow down. Listen, if the music plays, when the music plays, bow down, everything will go fine with you. Everything will be just fine. You and I together, we'll all just get along, and uh, we're going to prosper together, and everything's going to be fine. And by the way, if you don't bow down, you're going to lose your position. There's all kinds of ways to be thrown into the furnace. Many subtle ways. You're going to lose your reputation. You know that promotion you've been wanting for all these years? You may actually have to be one of them pastors that works a full-time job in order to serve your congregation. I'll tell you what, just bow down. We'll get you a nice big church and a bunch of stuff to go along with it. I'm not kidding here. This is what's happening, isn't it? I'm not making this up. Let me give you some, some more examples here. You know, more and more people are looking to government to solve all their problems. Again, please don't misunderstand me. I am not demonizing government. I'm not demonizing any person. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm merely showing you the imagery that the Bible gives us that we need to be aware of. But a growing amount of people are dependent upon the idol of the state. The state is to provide for those who are needy. That is biblical. That is one of the things that God has ordained for the state. He has established governments to care for people. What he has not done is establish governments to take off and become idols in themselves and raise up a society that's growing increasingly dependent upon government. More and more people, depending on government, every day. Now, every time something happens, you know, every time something happens, instead of a prayer being lifted up to God, people are crying the government to fix it. Instead of praying to Almighty God, they're crying to the government, you need to do something. And what's behind that seems to be this twisted idea that government in itself can create this utopian paradise. That takes you back to Genesis 11, doesn't it? That takes you back to Daniel 3. If you're going to go back to Genesis 11 and you're going to go to Daniel 3, don't forget Revelation 17. Keep all the pictures together. Keep them all together. You know... Tomorrow morning, as people get together in the office, they're inevitably going to be saying, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? Did you see this on the news? I don't understand how all this can be happening. I don't understand how, I don't understand how people could be so stupid to do this or how this could happen, how that could happen, how this could happen, how that could happen. And some of us might be exchanging that kind of conversation. What's going on to our society? Let's think about Revelation 17. What happens to the prostitute? She's inevitably destroyed. As we increasingly become an idolatrous state, we are pushing the gas pedal down on our destruction. That's what's happening. It's a self-destructing entity. It can't continue. It can't continue. It can't continue. Let's just think for a moment. Let's just think of, of three hallmark 
things that the government has done that is self-destructing. And as I say, the government, I don't, want to, I don't want to demonize the government. Again, I'm not trying to demonize the government because we've all done this as a society together. We've taken prayer out of the schools. That has been destructive. We used to be on top in the world, leading in education. We're 25th, I understand, right now. And our schools, of all places, our schools were safe. And they're not safe today. And I'm going to sound like some old-fashioned fire and brimstone guy when I suggest that if we put prayer back into the schools, guess what? They'd be safe again, and they'd prosper again. You know, that just doesn't even sound modern, does it? Might not sound modern, but it's biblical. We think of another one, another hallmark thing that we've done as a culture is abortion. I heard Donald Trump saying that, in his opinion, what we need to do is, as we train people up in these, in these, uh, these institutions, that we train people up in, he named all of these Ivory League uh, uh, colleges and universities, and we need to keep them. Instead of sending them off back to the, to the other recesses of the globe, we need to keep these people because we need talent. The Silicon Valley needs talent. Napa Valley needs talent. You know what I think when I hear that? I agree. I mean, I agree with that. But you know what I think when I hear that? How many talented fetuses have we aborted in this world, in in these United States? How much talent have we destroyed? Do you see the self-destruction nature of this? You see, we've got to learn to be able to see this. We've got to learn to be able to point this out and still be able to minister. I'm going to get to that here in a second. But a third hallmark, a third hallmark before I do, is same-sex marriage. Is that going to prosper our families? No. And anything that destroys the family unit is going to destroy the nation because the nation is only as strong as its individual family units are. Our families are in trouble in this country. Our families are in big-time trouble. We know this because we each belong to a family. And our families are messed up, aren't they? The family units are in trouble. Now, we've got to figure out how we can stand, first of all. How do we stand? We stand by seeing things for what they are. That's how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are able to stand. They, they pretty much submit to Babylon. They submit to the government. They submit to everything until Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down. They say, well, no, no, no. You know, we're with you, Nebuchadnezzar, pretty much. I mean, we're here to support you, Nebuchadnezzar. We're, we're, here, we're here to be of support to you. We're here to support you. We're not going to bow down to that statue. That isn't going to happen. You see, they see that for what it is. Daniel sees that for what it is. They see this thing. They understand this thing. But I'm going to submit that they go further than simply being able to stand. I think we miss this. If we don't see this part, I think we miss Daniel. I don't think we understand Daniel until we see that Daniel and his three friends aren't simply standing faithfully. They're ministering. We're not going to minister to anybody throwing rocks at them. I can cry with the woman who has gone through an abortion right now. I can cry with her right now. Who somewhere in her past, she had an abortion. And I always want to be able to cry with her. And I still want to be able to see this for what it is. Because that's the only way I can minister to her. Tammy and I, over the years, we have befriended many people that are in the lesbian, gay, 
homosexual community. And I love these individuals. I love them. In the very near future, saying the things that I'm saying right now could actually put somebody like me in jeopardy, in legal jeopardy. This could be a hate crime. Do you believe that? This could be a hate crime. I don't hate anybody. I, I can stand before you right now, and I can't think of a person that I hate. And I certainly don't hate these individuals that are actively involved in homosexual, in homosexual relationships. I don't hate them. I believe what they're doing is wrong, but I don't hate them. And I don't hate our government officials. I don't hate them. You see, if we leave here this morning and we're villainizing people, and we're demonizing people, I've done, I've done this church a great disservice with this, with this sermon. We can't do that. See, we might be able to stand that way, but we can't minister that way. How do we do it? Let me give you six little points here that I think we, that you're all probably got. Just let me help you put them on pegs in your mind. We need to realize, first of all, that it's God who changes the times and seasons. Bob Dylan says, Ew, the times are changing, you know? That's what he says. They are. In the 60s when he wrote that song, and in the 70s, and in the 80s, and in the 90s. And they're changing rapidly now, too. But who's changing them ultimately? God is. Let's not think about these changing like, oh, the church is through, the church is done for. If this happens, then it's, we're through. No, we're not. Christ has promised to build His church. It's the gospel that changes lives the gospel is just as powerful today, right now, as it was in the first century. It hasn't lost any power. It's changing lives as powerfully today as it did then. The promise remains. So we need to recognize it's God who changes the times. We need to realize that it's God who sets up kings and kingdoms. He sets them up. He removes them. We need to learn to recognize earthly governments have a tendency to orb into an idolatrous state. It varying. We're not demonizing government. We need government. We need to be thankful for government. Government does a lot of things for us that if it were to disappear, we would miss it immediately. Regulates our food and drugs. You realize the drugs that we'd be taking if there were no regulations on them? It, re it regulates commerce. You realize the interest rates that the poor would be paying? They're already paying some outlandish interest rates, but do you realize what they'd be praying, paying if there wasn't for laws? I mean, we could go down the list. Our military protects us. We can go right down the list. We need our government, and our government has its place. But governments have a tendency to orb into what we call the idolatrous state, and we have those three pictures in the Bible where we see that, and we just need to simply recognize that so that we can stand and we can minister in the midst of that. And we also need to realize how they operate. How do they operate? They operate through seduction and power by promising that they can do all of these things. Yeah, we can do all of these things. Just when the music plays, bow down. We have to stand against that. And we have to reveal that for what it is without demonizing people and chucking rocks at them. It can be done. Jesus did it. Read the Gospels. He did it over and over again. And sixthly, and most importantly, I saved the best for the last, we need to cling to Christ. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you know, there's a, a fifth kingdom. 
the stone is taken from the mountain, not cut by human hands. It comes and it crushes all of the kingdoms, doesn't it? It levels them to where they're nothing but a powder as the wind blows away. That's who we cling to. It's Christ. This is the most important of all of them. We cling to Christ. Where the idolatrous state, it's, it, 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 it functions by seduction, by promises it can't keep, through deceit, and through force and fear, where Christ is the exact opposite. He functions by promises he can keep. And he gathers his kingdom and he perpetuates it in truth and love and righteousness. Amen? Times are changing, but ultimately it's God who's changed them. And Christ has promised to build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against him. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for this great truth. We thank you, Father, that, Lord, you've loved us so much that you've revealed these pictures to us, Father. I pray that these pictures will be firm in our minds, firm in our hearts, O Lord. And that, Father, Lord, I, I pray that, Lord, you will instruct us in such a way that we see things for what they are, Father, but fashion our hearts in such a way that our hearts are broken, O Father, for people that are still lost, for people who are still actively involved in all of these things that we would be involved in if it weren't for your grace. So, O Father, we pray, Lord, that we would not only be able to stand in the midst of all of this, that, Father, we would also be able to minister. In Jesus' precious name, amen.